Today is the first sermon in a new series, as uh, Laura showed us on that, uh, that video. Um, that it's, it's going to be a non-sequential series of sermons. So we're going to do one now, and maybe a month later we'll do another one. We'll, we'll keep on revisiting this and interjecting it down the road. But it's going to focus on methods of evangelism. Now, I probably don't have to share with you or explain to you what I mean by method, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page, this is what a method is. A method is a particular way of doing something. It's a process. It's a procedure. It's, it's basically, when we're talking about evangelism, it's really, it really centers down to the how-to's. Right? When we talk about evangelism, we're talking about the practice of sharing our faith or spreading the Christian message, which is often termed or described as the gospel or good news. And so the practice of evangelism has evolved. The methods that people have used over the centuries, it has evolved. There has been so many different methods. And the methods that might have been used a thousand years ago or hundred years ago or 60 years ago are not really appropriate methods or effective methods today. And let me explain why I say that. So if you go back to um, the, the methods of, uh, of uh, evangelism in church history, in the early church, evangelism or the method of evangelism primarily took its shape by public preaching and personal testimony. Now, an example of this would be who? If you go back to the early church, who would be the example of this? Paul, right? Do this. All right, yeah, there we go. We're all tracking now. Paul is this person that we would go to as a perfect example of of this type of preaching, of personal testimony and public preaching. Paul, when he evangelized throughout the Roman Empire, he would do this. He practices. He He would preach, and then he would share his personal story. And, and, and in doing so, also, he established these, these Christian communities in Ephesus or Philippi or Corinth or Rome. And, um, and, so, and then his letters that would go back, uh, be written to them, they, they also would be a form of, of evangelism as they uh, explained a lot of the beliefs or uh, the theology of the church. The next would be the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages um, were uh, defined in the practices or the methods by the Christian monastics. These communities, these Christian monastic communities, they would actually intentionally build their communes or their communities right smack in the middle of a pagan community or city. And their idea was, their idea around this was their method of evangelism was, we are going to evangelize by relating with the community around us. And we are going, since they're our neighbors, we're going to go out and we're going to evangelize them in our neighbors. So that was the method. An example of this might be um, uh, St. Uh, St. Patrick, who went to Ireland, or St. Boniface, who was in uh, Germany, did most of his work in Germany. Then you have the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And this introduced a new approach to a method of, of evangelism. And it's all done by this guy named Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther? Martin Luther, uh, he used the printing press to distribute his famous 95 theses. Um, and and this, exa- this example gives us a new method of, of evangelism where uh, Martin Luther uses... Uh, the innovation of technology as a method of, of evangelism. 
Then you have in the 18th and 19th centuries, you have this, uh, these are revivals. They were known as the first and second great awakenings. It swept the United States and most of Western Europe. And these revivals popularized another method. These revivals, you would go to these revivals, and at the end of the, the, the sermon or the message, the, the preacher would give what was called an altar call, Right? And the idea of this altar call was a method where individuals were invited to come forward and publicly declare their faith or respond to the good news after such a revival. Then we get to today. Today, uh, we could say today more uh, broadly began with the 20th century, moved into the uh, 21st century, but it was brought, uh, uh, it brought further innovation in evangelism today by the use of technology. Radio and television allowed evangelists like Leighton Ford or Billy Graham to reach millions with the gospel message. And then the rise of the internet in the late 20th century and our century, the 21st century, it has provided a new platform for evangelism with many Christian organizations and individuals using websites. And if you're at home or you're watching this a year later on YouTube, you're using this type of technology today as a method or a tool to spread the gospel message, the good news. So you see that even though the purpose of evangelism remained the same, to spread the good news with an emphasis on bringing other people to a saving knowledge or to a faith in Jesus Christ, the means or the instruments or the methods of doing so have evolved significantly over the centuries. So this is a series about methods. It's about methods. How do we do evangelism effectively? But before we jump into the mud there, before we get dirty today, we're just going to set the stage. We're going to start not with the, the method, but we're going to start with the mindset to evangelism. Or how do we approach it? What goes on inside of us when we think about evangelism or the um, uh, about the method that we do. Now, evangelism, whether you know it or not, it is a fundamental aspect of what we believe as followers. And it is re rooted so tightly into the Great Commission. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. Matthew has this Great Commission. We'll later look at John's in a few moments. But Jesus says, he comes to them, he says, All authority has been given to me. Go. Since I have the authority, I have the authority now to tell you what to do. Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, what Jesus is doing here is he is instructing his disciples to go and make disciples. And even though we're given the, even though we're given the option to choose the method, Jesus doesn't go and say, okay, here's how you do it, Peter. Here's how you do it, Matthew. You're a tax collector. This is, you got to be easy on how you approach people. Even though he doesn't go and tell Nathaniel there, 
He doesn't, he doesn't care about the, op, the options that we have on the methods. Jesus does not give us a choice on the mandate. We don't have the option on whether or not we are to evangelize or share our faith. You see, basically, this, this is the case. Our mandate demands a method and not the other way around. It's our mandate that drives us. It's what Jesus commanded us to do that makes us devise or come up with this mandate. Now, I'm not going to try to convince you today that you should share your faith. You've been in the church long enough that you should already be sharing your faith. It's not whether you share your faith or not. It's when you share your faith, this is the method that you should use or That is the method you should choose. You see, it's the Holy Spirit's job to do the work inside of you on how you personally are going to respond to this mandate. This series will look at different methods. But before we get into those, we're going to look at the mindset. That's where we're going to focus today. We're going to look at the cornerstone. We're going to look at the foundation, the starting place when it comes to evangelism. Methods, how we, change our, how we share our faith, methods, they will change over time in different settings with different people. But what we're going to talk about today, it will not ever change. Now, Paul understood this mandate. He understood this. I mean, we get a glimpse into his mindset in the book of Acts where Luke shares Paul's practice when he visited new towns. On the first missionary journey, he goes down to uh, Cyprus. He goes up to Antioch, Pisidia. He goes to uh, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, and then back. The second journey, he goes to further. He goes to Ephesus, Philippi. He goes further out. And then the third, he goes further. And the fourth, he goes actually to Rome. But in each one of those towns that he went to, these new towns that he went to, that really, in, in on all, all honestly, they may not have heard about Christianity right? They knew about the Jewish faith, but they didn't really know about Christianity. They might have heard some rumors. They might have heard some scuttlebutt about it, but they may not have understood the significance of what it meant or Jesus's work. So when Paul entered into a new town, where did he go first? Every single town, except for those places that did not have a synagogue, he would go into the synagogue. He would go into the synagogue and, 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 and see the practice of a synagogue was this. When you went to synagogue, if you were a Jew, you went to the synagogue, and this is what you experienced. You would have a reading from the Old Testament. It might have been the Pentateuch. It might have been from the prophets. It might have been from the writings. It might have been from the wisdom, whatnot. But you would have a reading, and then a rabbi would would share his thoughts about that. There might be a teaching on it. Then he would open up the congregation. Then the congregation, or those who were gathered, could ask questions, right? This was typical. The reading, the rabbi, the questions. Or they could give their own interpretation of the scripture passage that was read. And this is when Paul would introduce Jesus. But he did so that it was not just, he didn't just begin with Jesus, but he mentioned his He mentioned the prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about Jesus. 
And so subtly and in a very intentional way, he would lean into this, this aspect of sharing the faith with these Jewish men and women and the God-fearing Gentiles who would be practicing there. It was called the practice of kerygma, where you would talk about the history of your faith in current context of what was going on. So Paul would talk about what the scripture was talking about, and then he would apply it to how Jesus was fulfilling those prophecies. And in our passage, Paul actually lays out this process that he learned when he went to Lystra or Iconium or Antioch, Pisidia or Cyprus or Ephesus or Philippi. He learned in Thessalonica or Athens. This is what he learned and he wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians. He writes, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. You know why he puts this in parentheses? I mean, obviously, there's not parentheses in the Greek language. But the reason he says this is to make sure that nobody says, wait a minute, then you must not be a Christian, or you must not be following God. He, he's really setting the stage. He's really actually uh, de- de- uh, speaking about the differences between how he lives and the limits that he would go to to, uh, to uh, bridge the gaps in the people around him. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. Now, now look at this repetition here. That I might win Jews. That I might win those under the law. That I might win those outside the law. And that I might win the weak. This is, this is he's very rep- repetitive on this. And, and, and notice the wording here. What's interesting is just one word. One word. Not win, but might win. It might win. In fact, Paul says it this way. I have become all things to all people that I might, by, that by all means I might save some. That doesn't really sound like a successful method, does it? I mean, it sounds like he has to uh, do a little bit more research on methods, right? This is why this is so important to start here. Because it sounds like Paul is not too confident. He really has really low expectations for success, doesn't he? What's going on here? Why is he saying, I've done all, I'm doing everything, I've become all things for all people that by all means, I might win some. This is what Paul understood. Paul understood that he had to remain faithful to the mandate and not the results. Isn't this difficult? I mean, just time out for a second. 
isn't this difficult? I mean, we go to school so that we can learn how to do addition, so that when we are given the test, we do addition correctly. It's about the results. We get a job, and we're given a job description, and and we live into that job by following the expectations of the job description. Because we want results. Paul understood that maybe in every other part of our lives, that could be true. But when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing our faith, Paul understood that he had to be remain faithful to the mandate and not the results. I mean, think about those times when you are controlled by the results. And when you get a rejection letter, maybe for a college or a job or something like that, you feel like you have to, you feel so deflated. Don't you? Because you're driven by the results. And we understand how easy that this is the case for us in our society. How easy it is for us to do the very same thing here. And because Jesus does not give the methods when he evangelizes, he gives a great commission. And Paul so emphatically says, might, 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 and I've done all, 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 all to win some. He's so emphatic that you can't help but have to see this as such an essential part of evangelism. We must remain faithful to the mandate and not the results. Let me give you a prime example of this in my own life. I started preaching professionally. <laughs> I pre- my kids always tell me, quit preaching at me. I'm not preaching, sweetheart. I'm just passionate. Apparently, I've been preaching all my life. But I've been preaching as an ordained minister for about 14 years, 13 years. And and I remember even before I did that, when I put a a message together for youth ministry for the 20 some odd years we spent in youth ministry, I remember that I was driven by the results. And I had in my mind what the expected results should be. I believed that it was my job to bring people to Christ. Now, do you see? See what I did there? It wasn't my job. I didn't say it was my job to share my faith or share the gospel. I said it was my job. This is what I believed. It was my job to bring people to Christ. And I had a picture of what that looked like in my mind. Maybe go back to the first and second grade awakenings, an altar filled of of people coming to Christ or publicly declaring. Year after year, I didn't see my results. Can you imagine the pressure? My preparation, I believed, and my words... They carried an internal implication for people. I had to get it right. So when I didn't get my expected results, what did I do? I went back and I figured out a new method, right? A new method. Okay, I'm going to do this, an A, B, C, and D, and we're going to try this for a couple weeks. And that didn't work. I didn't get my 
when I say it didn't work, let me say it this way. When I didn't get my expected results, I went back and did it again. Imagine how it felt after year after year that people in my, they didn't respond in the way that I thought they should. And over time, I got tired of changing my methods, so I reworded the mandate. Did you catch that? I didn't stay true and faithful to the mandate. What did I do? I started to reword the mandate. Maybe I didn't understand the mandate. Maybe Jesus didn't really mean go into all the world. He was talking about a first century world. What's this 2000? Jesus, do you really know what the world is like today? It didn't happen all at once. It happened subtly. I was more faithful at that time to the results than the mandate. Paul. Paul was not driven by the results. He was okay to empty his heart, to become all things to all people in uh, all different ways, to win some. I imagine that he had that on his Twitter account, that it was something that he would send out. It was probably a banner that he read above his computer when he would write his sermons. All things for all people at all times to win some. Paul was faithful to the mandate, which meant Paul's mindset about evangelism was more about his obedience than his results. Now get this. This is all about setting the framework for evangelism. If you don't get this right at the first, at the beginning, then you will find yourself discouraged down the road, wondering if the mandate needed to be changed. I've tried everything, Jesus. Maybe the mandate needs to be changed. Paul's mindset about evangelism was more about his obedience than his results. In our passage, Paul is referring to his approach to evangelism and how he adapted his behavior and his actions depending on the people that he was trying to reach. I mean, the key takeaway from Paul's analogy here or Paul's words here is his willingness to adapt, his willingness to build bridges, his willingness to relate to others in order to effectively communicate the message of the good news or the gospel. It's Paul's mindset was to build these bridges so that he could be more effective in his communication of that message. When he was in the synagogues and it was his turn, nobody else was speaking, he thought, man, this would be a great time. Maybe I should get up and I should say something. He didn't get up and say, you know what? You really, got, you really messed it up when you killed Jesus. You think yeah, that's the way he approached this? No. He would start way back in the Old Testament, find some common ground, and then he would build upon that common ground as he went forward. Think of a, a, a diplomat or a, a U.S. ambassador who is sent to represent their country or our country while being immersed in a foreign culture. What do, what do they do? When they go into that foreign culture, what do they do? Do they try to assimilate everybody there to make them act like him or her? 
Do they demand that, that the people that they are a diplomat to or th- that they are sent to, that they demand that they be like him? Do they force them to change their customs, to wear Nikes instead of boots or sandals or uh, whatever? These men and these women, they go in, they, they might adopt certain customs, they might dress appropriately, they learn the local language or the traditions, they establish common ground. This is what it's like for today, overseas missionaries. Believe me, there are people who give their lives to go overseas to be missionaries in foreign lands, maybe even indigenous lands. And in order to connect with those individuals from maybe a different faith, maybe different traditions, they might familiarize themselves with the customs, the practices, the beliefs, the values of that community in order to build trust, the common ground. If they walk into that community and say, hmm, that's not what we do. So that stuff is hogwash. You don't need to do that anymore. No. Do you see what that is? That's majoring on the minors. Do you know what the result of that kind of evangelism? It's militant evangelism. It demands people be like them before they can be a believer in Jesus. And that has done more harm over the centuries than we could ever imagine it doing. So Paul shows us in this passage and what he encourages us uh, to do uh, is is uh, is um, assimilate, build bridges, know where your limits are, know where you're going to go to the mat for. But if it's non-essential, if it's outside the Apostles' Creed, let's not go to the mat for it. Not yet. You know what's interesting? The reason this is important is because those people who push back on faith, push back on Jesus, they do so because they don't understand everything. They want to, they want to understand creation. Gee, the Bible speaks about a six-day creation. Well, how can that be? It must all be wrong because this is wrong. Or they look at Jonah in the well, and with a little giggle in their voice, they say, <laughs> he was swallowed by a fish? And survive? Yeah, that's a tall tale. Or they'll go to uh, Noah or different, different aspects. And they'll zero into those points. And they are going to double down on those points. And do you know what the most horrible thing that we as Christians can do? Is come in and address those things. Well, you're wrong. Or, yeah, Jonah, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, right? It's got to happen. Or the things that people bring up that we don't know, we, we feel like it's our job. we got to formulate an answer. We've got to make up an answer. Friends, this is crazy. We are doing more harm than good. When those outside our faith are, uh, are received with so much pushback of all the minor things, it just grounds them deeper and deeper to stay put. 
This is what Paul does. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became under the law. To the Gentiles, those are outside the law. I became as one outside the law. And the weak. I mean, this is not about being physically weak. Paul, in his books, he talks about those who are weak in faith. Those are the Christians in the church who are weak in their faith. They might not actually believe that prayer works, but it might work if somebody else does it. (laughs) So these are people that he is trying to get them from point A to point B and point B to point C. And Paul's method in reaching these groups was determined on all the ways they are different. I became a Jew to win the Jews. I became under the law. Outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Paul remained faithful to the mandate. His method changed, but his message did not. So what do we learn from Paul? Two things I want you to learn from this. And I want you to write these down. I want you to tuck these away, put them in your Bible, so that when we revisit this, maybe in uh, three or four weeks, we can come back and and, uh, we can zero in and build off where we began. The first thing is, share your faith, not a list of obligations. Share your faith, not your faith experience, not a list of obligations. When Anna was born, or John was born, at the moment they were born, they were part of our family. They received our name. And even though they didn't act like us, we still kept them around. We did. Now, the older they got, they, uh, we, we, uh, we didn't impose on them that they had to actually act the right way from the very beginning. We picked our battles, but we faithfully and we intentionally and consistently molded them, guided them, corrected them, encouraged them. When we get to a list of obligations, not everybody's like me. Not everybody likes a list. I do. I like a list. Kind of shows my expect, the, someone else's expectations. And when I'm done, I can say, look at what I have done. Not everybody likes that, especially when it comes uh, centered around a list of, of, of a faith, when it becomes part of a faith experience. What we're doing when we list a, uh, a list of obligations is we are trying to assimilate and major on the minor things and not the major thing. Do you know where we go to the mat for? I'm not saying all the other stuff that doesn't matter. What I am saying is where we go to the mat is the resurrection of Christ. That's our starting point. When our share of faith experience, we have to share what is the effect the resurrection of Christ has on us. Now, we might not use those terms, But the idea is the same. 
Someone comes to you and says, well, I don't understand how Noah says, man, that is a pretty tall tale, right? (laughs) I have trouble with that too. What about Noah and the boat? Really? You got all those animals in? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I don't really understand. What are you doing? You're taking their, their spark away. You're taking their ammunition away. They're wanting you to come back with this, this defense of these things. And before you know it, you have diluted the gospel message into all of these things and Jesus instead of it just being about Jesus. The second thing is this. Share the gospel, not your theology or denomination. Listen, we're all on the same team. We might baptize different. We might confirm different. We might do church different. You know one of the things my mom and dad used to say? They they couldn't believe that there were women preachers. And I remember telling my dad, Mom, Dad, they exist. I've seen them. They're they're real. I knew what they meant. They don't believe that they should be preaching and stuff like that. But it's sad that people go to the mat for that. Really? That's where we're going to go to the mat for? You see, we share the gospel, not the theology or the denomination. And what is the gospel? What is the good news? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Remember I told you about Matthew and Jesus' great commission? I told you I share with you John's great commission. It was in John chapter 21, and Jesus is with the uh, disciples in the upper room, and he gets to the disciples, and the very first thing is he does when he appears to them, behind lo- they're behind locked doors, and there's Jesus right there in their midst. Jesus b- breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then he gives them this mandate. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So what I have been called to do, now I'm calling you to do this. And the message that you are to do, to give, is is you are to proclaim a forgiveness that has already been declared in heaven. You can read it. Your message is proclaim a forgiveness that has already been declared in heaven. You see, if God's forgiveness... And if if God's forgiveness and our belief is not the only thing, then it is nothing. If God's forgiveness and our belief is not the only thing, then it's nothing. It's diluted. It becomes nothing more than a Instagram post. So just imagine. Just imagine you had 90 seconds. Now the method would change or whatnot, but verbally, this is going to be one of those verbal times that you are going to share your faith. You have 90 seconds to share your faith. What are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about theology? Are you going to talk about the Trinity? Are you going to talk about lapsarianism or predestination? Or election or free will? Are you going to talk about your denomination? 
You're going to talk about how you're different from the Baptist church or the Baptist church is different from the Roman Catholic church? Are you going to focus in on those things? No. You have 90 seconds. What you do is you leave the Bible out of it altogether. And you share in those 90 seconds why you're different because of Jesus. Do you know why? Because nobody can argue with your experience. They want to argue about everything, but they can't ever argue about your experience. And be okay with no results. Because Robert Tuttle, in his book, Can We Talk? says it takes 25 no's before you get a yes. And you just might be the fifth no. But be faithful to the mandate. Gracious God, I pray that as you surround us with your most intimidating angels, that you will continue to guide us, direct us. I pray, O oh God, that you will write on the very fabric of our heart the mandate to share our faith. And that we, O oh God, don't make it anything more or anything less than your forgiveness that has been declared in heaven. And that, O oh God, is good news. And it's all made possible because of your grace, your mercy, your love, but also your intentional and deliberate gift of your son, Jesus Christ, as an atonement for us. And because he rose from the dead, he now, O oh God, has made it possible that there is not going to be anything on earth. No, not even death that can separate us from that forgiveness and your love for us. Spur us, oh God. Keep us going. Let us be faithful to your mandate. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.